glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they has been, had been told. This is God's word. Maybe seated. Kate, thank you for reading our scripture passage this morning. Uh, friends, it's good to be with you today. Wonderful to get to celebrate as the Yankees and Lesters and Millers committed to uh, make grace their, their church family. And it's always fun to get to celebrate in the season of Advent. And if you've been with us for the last uh, couple of Sundays, you know we are in this uh, teaching series Uh, looking within the wider Christmas story at these stories of people who had encounters with angels. And if there was an award for the people who got to see the most angels, it would be the shepherds. If you've been following along, um, Zechariah got to see one angel came to him. Uh, Mary had one angel come to her. Uh, Joseph has one angel come to him in a dream, and John's going to preach about that Um, story next Sunday, but the angels come in multitudes to the shepherds. The shepherds get to see not just one angel, but a whole host of angels, a whole multitude of angels. And as I thought about this story, I thought, man, this is such a significant encounter with angels that that, that really, I I can't just preach on this story once. I need to preach on it twice. So I'm going to preach on it um, today for our service today. And I'm going to come back to this same story and preach on it again on Christmas Eve. But I want to look at this story of the shepherd's encounter with the angels uh, in different ways. On Christmas Eve, I want to focus on the angel's message to the shepherds, this message where they say, fear not, for we bring you tidings of of great joy that a Savior has been born. On Christmas Eve, I want to focus on the angel's message, but this morning, I want to focus on the angel's methods, or perhaps better put, on God's methods in the way that he goes about sharing his message. In the Bible, angels are primarily God's messengers. Angels are these spiritual, powerful beings who dwell in the holy presence of God, and they fly like lightning to do his bidding, to convey his messages. And when God wants to send the most important message that he has ever sent, to declare this message that the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, in fact, none other than the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is coming to take on flesh, to be the Savior of the world. What is God's method for how he goes about sending this message? And what we see in this, this story is that God sends this message, he sends it by, by, by sending angels to these shepherds, but then by sending shepherds to share that message with just about everyone else. And that got me thinking this week really about two questions, the first of which is, why does God send angels to the shepherds? Why do they get an angelic visitation? It makes sense in all the other three stories that we're looking at in this series, why God would send an angel. Here's Zechariah, right? We said that he and his wife Elizabeth, they are advanced in years. They have long given up any hope that they're going to have a child of their own. 
And so to announce the fact that Elizabeth is going to become pregnant with a baby, and not just any baby, but she's going to have the child who's going to be the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah, you can think, okay, that's a message that needs a little extra angelic credibility. And then you come to Mary, right? And, and the angel is going to tell her that in spite of the fact that, that she is a virgin, she is going to have a, a baby uh, grow up within her, that she's going to give birth to a child, not just any child, but to the Messiah, who is in fact the son of the Most High. It's going to take Mary at least 30 years to fully comprehend who this child would be in her womb. You can see, again, why you might need an angel to be able to back up that wild of a message. And, and, and more than anybody, Joseph... Right, John's going to preach about Joseph next Sunday to believe that his fiancée, though she is a virgin, is, is now pregnant, but the baby is not some other guy's baby. I mean, he would absolutely need a visitation from an angel to convince him that that message was true. You can see why for all of the other three, it makes sense that God would send angels to them, but why to the shepherds? Why this group of guys who are just going about their normal, everyday work? Why does God send an angelic message to them? Why do they get to hear about this good news from angels? But then relatedly, here's the second question. Why doesn't anyone else? Everybody else, they don't get angels, they just get shepherds, right? The shepherds hear the message and they go off and they share it with everyone else. I suppose everybody else, they probably would have liked to see some angels. They might have appreciated getting to hear the message from angels. They certainly would have probably been more likely to believe it had they received that message from the angels. But they don't get angels, do they? They just get shepherds. And so two questions that I want to ask together this morning. First, why in God's methods does he choose to send his message to the shepherds from angels? And then secondly, why does he send shepherds, not angels, to pretty much everybody else? And as we look at those two questions, we're going to be asking, why does this matter for you and for me today? So, here we go. First, why does God choose to send his angels to declare this message to the shepherds? Here are these guys. They're, they're, they're guarding their flocks by night. Verse says they're living out in the fields, doing what they've done every other night in the midst of their shepherding season, when all of a sudden they see an angel. And then not just one angel, right, but a whole multitude of angels and then they go and they, they, they go to Bethlehem to see what the angels have told them, that this Savior has been born. There they find the nativity. They find Mary and Joseph with this newborn baby in a manger. And when they see this, they go off to tell everyone else what they have seen and what they have heard. And what's striking to me is I was thinking about this. You know, we, we have a, an almost two-year-old son. So a lot of our, like, social activity, when we, have, when we get to do social activity, I feel like a lot of it consists around attending um, young kids' birthday parties. And um, that's, that's some of our, our life at this stage right now. And, and maybe, you know, a friend from school or a friend from church is having a birthday, and so we'll, we'll go to that. And that's a lot of fun. Frankly, it's an honor 
you know, whenever you get invited to any kind of party, if you ever get invited to a Christmas party or to a birthday party or to a wedding, you feel honored to be included, to be invited, to be a part of that guest list. And yet, just think about this with me for a moment. The only people who were invited to Jesus' very first birthday party were the shepherds. They were the only people who got to come and, and see the newborn Savior of the world. The only people that got invited, which, which is a little bit surprising given the fact that shepherds probably were not used to being included on a lot of guest lists in the first century Jewish world. If you go back into Israel's history, to be a shepherd was a pretty noble profession. David was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. It was a pretty noble family business to be a shepherd. But by the time you get to the first century Jewish world, a lot of that had changed. It was no longer so much a, a family business so much as it was kind of a fee-for-service sort of business. And, and as we noticed, given the fact that it was work that you had to do at night, most people don't want jobs that you have to do at night. Even today, in our society today, um, night jobs are often the ones that, that people are, are least likely to want to do. And so the people who would sign up uh, for this work to be a shepherd, um, this, this work that most people in society didn't want, um, and then along with that, to just think about kind of the nature of the work. I mean, it was kind of risky. You could, you could be exposed to attack from, from thieves or robbers or, or wild animals. And then you're spending your time with maybe not such clean company in the sheep. They're dirty. They stink. You're spending a lot of time around those sheep. It developed such that, that shepherds were not allowed to go and worship at the temple because they were considered to be unclean. Shepherds were looked down upon in Jewish society at this time. Uh, they were considered to be unreliable sorts of people. Their testimony would not be admitted as evidence in a court of law. Shepherds were not viewed very highly in the first century Jewish world, and yet they are the very people whom God chooses to invite to Jesus' first birthday party. And they are the very group who get to receive the message of Christmas from angels. Why? Why does God choose to send his angels to the shepherds? And as I've thought about that question, I've come up with three answers. And, and I think they're, they're grounded in the text. I think they're grounded in God's word. I could be wrong. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why did you send angels to the shepherds? But this is, this is my interpretation, at least, with a grain of salt. But let me, let me suggest three reasons. Here's the first. I believe God sends his angels to the shepherds because God is a God who loves to do the unexpected. He loves to confound the wisdom of the world. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In other words, God loves to do the unexpected. He loves to bring hope out of seemingly hopeless situations. 
God knows that as, as human beings, right, ever since Adam and Eve tried to put themselves in the place of God, they wanted the independence of trying to be their own God. One of the ways that that often expresses itself is as human beings, we love to make forecasts. We love to make predictions. We love to say, here's how this is going to happen. Here's how it's going to play out. I know how this is going to work. We see it all the time with sports, right? It's, it's bowl season coming up. The NFL playoffs are approaching. Everybody loves to say, right, this team is going to win. This team is going to lose. This team doesn't even have a chance. I don't even know why they're going to play the game at all. There's no chance that they could win. There's Stephen A., if you follow ESPN, who's always saying as long as Jerry Jones owns the Cowboys, they will never win a Super Bowl. We love to make these predictions. We love to say, here's how it's going to happen. We do it with the economy too, right? Everybody now is making their predictions. Are we going into a recession? Are we not soft landing, hard landing? Is there going to be a lot of loss of jobs? How do we respond to that? If we do this, this will happen. If we don't do this, this will happen. Everybody loves to make their forecasts. And we do it closer to home too, right? In our own relationships. Uh, maybe some of you are in a, a marriage right now that, that just is really difficult. And you think to yourself, there's no way this is ever going to get better. There's no way my spouse is ever really going to change. Or maybe you've got a, a family member, maybe you have a child, and they've just, just disappointed you in ways time and again. And you just think, there's no way that person is going to change. Or job situation that you think, this is not going to get any better. There's no good that could come out of this situation. We're always making these sorts of, of forecasts, these predictions of saying what can and can't happen. What will or won't happen. And I think that God often just loves to kind of push us off our high horse. He loves to step in and, and to say, watch me. See how I'm going to bring hope out of a seemingly hopeless situation. And, and, and I don't know what those places are in your life right now um, where you're feeling really discouraged, where you're feeling really hopeless. And I think part of the message of Christmas to us and part of the message of even how God sends his angels to the shepherds is God saying to us, look, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how hopeless that situation might seem. It doesn't matter how much you feel stuck in a particular rut or flaw or addictive pattern in your life. God says, I love to bring hope out of seemingly hopeless situations. I love to act in ways that are unexpected and to do miracles where we would not um, expect him to work. God loves to confound the wisdom of this world. And I think that's part of why he chooses to send his angels to the shepherds. But there's a second reason. I think he sends the angels to the shepherds. And that's not just because other people did not think too highly of the shepherds. But the shepherds were a class of people. They were a group of people who did not think too highly of themselves. That is, they, they weren't expecting that if God was going to act in the world, that he would first tell it to them. They weren't expecting that God owed them this insight into his revelation, into what he was doing. They didn't think that they deserved to get to be included in the good things that God was doing within his world. 
They did not think too highly of themselves. Now, I look around this, this room here today, and, and I recognize that, that most of us are not shepherds. As, as our day job, as our, our way of earning a living, but more than that, right, maybe most of us are probably not at the bottom of the totem pole in, in terms of, of the world's um, society and the way that people um, see you. It, certainly if you live in the United States of America, right, globally, incredibly blessed, incredibly um, privileged already, uh, but then in many ways, maybe you're here and you've got um, gifts, you've got connections, you've got privileges in your life that's wonderful. Maybe you're not a shepherd, but the question for every single one of us is, do I have a shepherd's heart? In the way that I see myself, in the way that I see God, in the way that I see myself in relationship to God. One thing that's kind of striking to me as I read through the Gospels is that often people are asking Jesus for a sign. Have you noticed that? If you've read through the Gospels before, the crowds ask for a sign, the Pharisees ask for a sign. What they want is a host of angels. What they want is for, for, for Jesus to do something that, that demonstrates visibly his power. And yet Jesus is always saying to them, no. He won't give them this, this sort of visible display of his power. It doesn't mean that he doesn't do miracles. Jesus did a lot of miracles. But the miracles that Jesus did, they were about healing. They were about redemption. They were about liberation. Never did he do these miracles that were just these kind of naked displays of his strength and his power. Why? Because Jesus knew the reason why the crowds, the reason why the Pharisees wanted him to do a sign was because they wanted him to give them enough evidence for whether they should be on his team, for whether he was going to be their champion. They wanted to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the powerful king who's going to be on our side, who's going to go remove our Roman overlords, establish us in greatness and in power? Are you going to be for us in the way that we want you to be? Indeed, they expected, they thought if God were to send his Messiah into the world, we would be exactly the first kind of people that he would want to choose for his team, to be a part of what he was doing. They never would have conceived that God's Messiah would need to come not in strength, but in weakness, that he would need to ultimately go to a cross where he, in a, in, a, in a form of greatest torture and humiliation, would suffer and die for them. They didn't see themselves as broken. They didn't see themselves as deeply flawed sinners who, even in their religion, were trying to get leverage over God. They did not see that they would need a Messiah who would come to save them in weakness and not in strength. And I think the question then for all of us this morning is do we have a shepherd's heart? Do you come to, to worship and do you think that God owes you? Like, I'm a good person. I'm showing up for worship here today. I'm here, aren't I right? I'm, I'm worshiping you. I'm trying to live a good life for you. And so God, you owe me to make things work out in my life the way that I want them to. Or I've lived a really hard life. God, I've been through a lot of really hard things. And so therefore, you owe me to make life work better now for me. If you come with that entitlement, if you come with that sense that God owes you, you will, unlike the shepherds, you will not get to see Jesus, or at least to see the beauty of Jesus. 
to see your need for Jesus. Like the shepherds, you're not going to walk away with real worship in your heart. You're not going to walk away with a strong sense of security unless you know, God, you don't owe me anything but your judgment. You don't owe me anything but to cast me off forever from you because of the ways I've mistreated other people, because of the ways that I have spurned your love for me, tried to run my life apart from you. God, you don't owe me anything unless you see that it is a gift of his grace. The great thing is when you do, there's so much security, there's so much joy because you know, gosh, if I didn't do anything to earn it, I can't do anything to lose it. I think that God loves to send his angels to the shepherds because they don't think too highly of themselves. And then the third reason I think he sends his angels to the shepherds is because he recognizes that these are people who aren't going to be afraid of being thought fools to go out and to share the good news that they heard with other people. You know, right away, after they see that Jesus has been born, what do the shepherds do? Verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. They were willing to go out and and tell other people what they had seen and heard. What they don't do is they don't huddle up with each other They don't say, I mean, did you guys really just see that? I mean, angels, can you believe that? Are we hallucinating? Was that real? Yeah, we really saw them. And yet, I mean, gosh, if we went out and we told other people that we had had this extraordinary supernatural experience of seeing these angels, they would think that we were crazy. They would look down on us even more than they already do. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep this as our personal, private, religious experience. We're not going to share this with anybody else. We're not going to risk imposing this on anyone else. Gosh, if we were to go tell people, they would even think, you know, if God were to send angels, there's no way he would send them to shepherds. They would think us to be fools. And, you know, maybe some people did. Maybe some people did think that the shepherds were fools when they came declaring this message. I guarantee that today, if you go and share the good news of Jesus, there are some people in your life who might think you're a fool for believing it too. You know, we've talked a lot in this series about this this book um, by a guy named Mike Cosper called Recapturing the Wonder and how he he, he shares that we live in this, this secular age. We live in a disenchanted world where the story that our world believes increasingly is that what is real and what matters is only what you can see and observe and measure and test. That's what's real, that we're really here as cosmic accidents, that we live and then we die, that we're alone in an empty universe. He says that's the narrative that our culture increasingly believes. And even if you're a Christian, right, we we swim in those same waters. We we, we breathe that same cultural air. Our instinct is is to disbelieve that God could be working in these amazing unseen ways. You know, after I preached the first sermon in this series, talking about angels, there's actually a member of our church who came up to me and she said, you know, I actually had an experience where I believe I saw an angel. And can I tell you what my initial reaction to that was? I thought, did you really? Like, did did you really have that experience, that suspicion, that disbelief? I had just preached about angels. I had just said that our world is teeming with angels, that we live in a supernatural reality. There's more to it than what we can see. And yet my unreasoned, just default response was, I don't know if I can believe that really happened. 
But then she shared the story with me. And it's her story, not mine, so I'm not going to share it. But can I just tell you, it, it was powerful. It was amazing. I was, I was moved, and I thought to myself, I thought, you know what? If God were to send an angel, that seems exactly like the kind of situation into which he would send an angel, how an angel might work as she came to faith in Jesus. Her whole family came to faith in Jesus through that experience. Jesus says the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents and turns to Jesus. I thought that's exactly the way that God would send an angel if he were to do so. But my point is this, my point is that we live in this, in this secular reality where, where our default is to disbelieve in these supernatural things. And so, of course, if you are willing to share with your family members, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, even this Christmas season, to say, you know, I, I really do believe that the baby in the manger actually was the Son of God, that Jesus isn't just a good human teacher, that God is at work in our world. When his plan reached the, the climax, he sent his son into the world born of a woman. I really do believe that Jesus is the Savior, that he died on a cross for our sins, that he rose again bodily from the dead, that one day he's coming back to renew and restore all things. Of course, there are some people in your life who may think that you are a fool. They may consider you unwise, they may make fun of you, they may think that you are less intelligent, they may see you as backwards, they may say, you need to get with the times, it's 2022, we have evolved religiously, we don't believe in those things anymore. Maybe as it relates to your beliefs, they'll think you're a fool. They may think that you're a fool as it relates to your behavior, if you're serious about wanting to follow Jesus. Some of you who converted later in life, you understand this dynamic more. Maybe in your families or maybe with your, your friends, if you became a Christian later in life, you weren't raised in a Christian family and you get a bonus check at the end of the year and everybody's thinking, what do we want to spend it on? And you say, you know, I think we should give some of this away to kingdom causes. You, you may get some blank stares like, what? Why would you do that? Why would you deprive yourself of some good to be generous in that way? Or perhaps if, if you are in a dynamic in your workplace, somebody that's irritating, somebody that's frustrating, maybe a boss, and it's, it's, it's tempting to, to, to complain and to grumble and to gossip about them, and you say, you know, I, I, I just don't want to be a part of that, or even you suggest, you know, maybe they're going through something difficult right now, and people look at you like, what? Why, why is that your perspective? And you, you say, because I'm trying to follow Jesus. I want to forgive. I, I want to love people who are, are different from me. Certainly, if you're trying to be obedient to God's design for your sexuality, you're single. And you say, you know what? I believe God created sex for the context of, of marriage. And so I'm living in chastity in my singleness. I mean, there are people who would look at you and say, that is so backwards. Why would you deny yourself in that way? The world may think you're a fool sometimes to believe in Jesus, sometimes to follow Jesus. And yet, it's not folly. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. If you go in the way of Jesus, that is, that is the wise way to go. I mean, even just look at the shepherds in this story. We said this um, again last Sunday. We'll say it again today. I mean, just think about the characters in the Christmas story. Look at these shepherds. They were nobodies in their world in the first century. But we're still talking about them 2,000 years later. But we've forgotten all the names of the movers and shakers, all the big important people in that first century world. Nobody could tell you their names. 
Because the way of Jesus always is the way that's going to lead to greatness. There is wisdom. And it's a far wiser way to approach the world, too, than to believe this life is all that there is. To believe that the world is only what you can see. We talked about this two weeks ago, how we long for there to be meaning and purpose to our lives that's not just going to be ripped away when we die. How we, we intuitively sense that when we experience something that is beautiful or wonderful, it's not just the, the physical stimuli triggering the pleasure sensors in our brains. There really is beauty. There really is wonder. There really is meaning and purpose to our lives in this world. It is a wiser, deeper, richer way to live in the way of Jesus, even if you may be thought a fool. And I think part of why God sends the angels to the shepherds is because they're willing to be thought fools as they go out to share the gospel message with others. So God sends his angels to the shepherds. Sorry, having a bit of trouble with the microphone here. Um, he sends his, his angels to the shepherds, but he stops there, doesn't he? Nobody else gets angels. Everybody else just gets shepherds. What's the deal there? Why is that? You know, the, the, the shepherds go out, they share the good news um, with the crowds. And again, I, I would imagine that those crowds, they would have wanted to see angelic glory and power too. And, and, and I bring this up because to do a series where we're talking a lot about angels, I think it's probably important to point out what, what God often um, does and Ken does, can, can act in supernatural, extraordinary sorts of ways. Ordinarily, the way that God speaks is much more ordinary. Well, God can speak through supernatural encounters with angels. Often, instead, he sends shepherds. Everybody else gets a shepherd. You and I often get shepherds. Now, I think that's important to, to keep in mind, that that's, that's ordinarily the way in which God speaks, um, not just as it relates to the, the birth of, of Jesus, but you go back in the Bible, right? You know, Moses gets to see God at a burning bush. Moses gets the burning bush. Everybody else mostly just gets Moses. You, you see the Elijah, right? He gets to see the fire come down from heaven, but God speaks through the still, small voice. Think about the apostles. They got to see Jesus bodily risen from the dead. They got to talk to him, eat with him, touch him. And yet everybody else... They get the apostles, right? They don't get to, to encounter the risen Jesus himself. Ordinarily, the way in which God speaks is, is not primarily through angels, but through shepherds. I think it's important to keep that in mind um, because um, often the, 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 the way in which God communicates his flawless message is through really flawed messengers, um, you, you, this morning, if, if the angel Gabriel tagged in to be our guest preacher this morning, I think that would be a sermon you would never forget. But you didn't get Gabriel, did you? <laughs> you just got me. You just got a shepherd. Right? A, a broken, flawed person like you who's been given the task of sharing the message that a Savior has been born. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, I would suspect that most of you, you did not get a vision, you did not encounter an angel, but there was a person, somebody in your life, somebody that you knew, maybe a family member, 
who helped introduce you to the fact that you were broken and sinful and flawed such that you needed a savior and they told you the good news about Jesus being that savior. And the temptation when you hear that message from a flawed person is what? Who are you to tell me that I need Jesus, right? I can see so much that's wrong in your life. Maybe you get defensive. You get offended to think that somebody would tell you that you are not good enough, that you are broken, that you need someone to live and die for you to be reconciled to God. The temptation is to say, because you're flawed, right? This message can't be true. Some of you had parents who took you to church and told you about Jesus, and yet there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of brokenness in your home and you saw a lot of flaws in your parents and for you then maybe for a season in your life that was the reason you turned away from the faith because you said I don't know if I can believe this message because it came from such a flawed messenger but you know ultimately that that's not a logical conclusion just because the messenger may be flawed doesn't mean that the message is and so often the way that God communicates is, is through these ordinary means. You know, it's even true of the Bible to some degree. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is, is, is God's word for us. That's why we preach it. That's why we encourage you to regularly have time in your life each day that you're opening the Bible, reading it. But you know, when you open the Bible, are there like beams of light that emerge from the pages? Can you hear like an angelic chorus singing background music as you're reading? I mean, if so, you probably would be like, wow, this is really meaningful. I should do this every day. Instead, you find, gosh, this is kind of a hard book to read. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of cultural background. There's a lot of terms that I don't understand. It takes work to make sense out of the Bible. It seems kind of ordinary sometimes, even though it's God's word to us. And my point is this, my, my point is that um, God often conveys his message and we, we hear from God, not in these extraordinary supernatural ways, um, but often in, in really ordinary ways. And his amazing gift comes to us, not in a particularly extraordinary um, package. And, and I think what, what matters then, and I'll end with this, is, is if, you, if you really want you know, to, to react like the shepherds. They go away praising God. They go away rejoicing. If you want to be, um, to be impacted by the message of Christmas, what matters is not so much the method by which you receive it, whether from angels or shepherds. What matters is how you respond to it. And that's where Luke ends the story. He gives a little contrast. He says, all who heard the story from the shepherds, they were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They were amazed. I don't know if they were more amazed by what they said or more amazed that it would be shepherds who were saying it to them. I'm not sure. But you get the impression that though the crowds heard this good news from the shepherds, though they might have thought, wow, this is interesting, this is fascinating, they weren't really changed by it. And you see that with the contrast that Luke uses. He says, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them, but Mary... But there's the contrast. He says something's different about how Mary's receiving this, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And so there's two words, treasured and pondered. Do you know what treasured means? 
Literally, it means to, to keep something, to hold on to something because you think it's so valuable and important that you're going to like put it in a treasure chest. You're going to keep those important truths. That's what Mary did as she thought about the things that were said about Jesus and these events that happened. She committed them to her mind. She committed them to memory. Have you ever wondered, like, where did Luke get his material? How did he know these things happened? It's because like 30 years later, he sat down with Mary. And he asked her, he said, tell me what happened. And because she treasured, she remembered these truths. She committed them to her mind. She was able to recount them. To treasure is is to take in the truths of God's word. My question for you is, how are you treasuring God's word right now? Have you come to to worship and you hear a sermon? Are there other means in your life, though? Are Are there rhythms where you're opening up the Bible? To be able to take it in, to be able to learn it, to be able to commit it to your mind. She treasured, and then secondly, she pondered. I mean, she asked questions, she reflected, she considered, like, if this is true, what does this mean for my life? We do that in community groups together. I hope you're doing that as you have, you know, regular, maybe daily rhythms of of communing with God in his word. What does this mean if God really took on flesh, if he really lived and died for me in Jesus, if he really has adopted me into his family, if I really know that I am so deeply loved by God and he's working out all things in my life for my good, how would that change my perspective? How would that bring peace and joy and courage into my life? See, what matters is not so much the method by which you get God's message, whether from angels and bright lights or through shepherds. What matters always is how you respond to that gospel message. Do you treasure it? Do you ponder it? Let's pray as we go to the Lord's table this morning. Our Father, we pray that even in a sermon preached by a um, a flawed and broken messenger, that your spirit would be at work taking your word and applying it to our lives where we need to hear it. Uh, For those of us who need to be encouraged and reminded that you love to bring hope out of hopeless situations. For those of us who need that that encouragement God to move out and more confidently share the good news with others, even if we might be thought to be fools. For those of us who need to humble ourselves before you, even as we come to this table and to acknowledge again that you don't owe us anything to be blown away by your grace. For those of us who need to have a renewed commitment to listening to you in your word, to treasure and ponder the amazing truths that we celebrate this Christmas. I pray that as we come to this table, this could be our opportunity not just to receive some some bread and a cup that, that visually demonstrate, Jesus, your love for us, but that this could be a way for us to respond, Jesus, to you, wherever it is that you might be nudging and calling us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord Jesus